Real Christianity is often confused and distorted. Imperfect people with imperfect beliefs and imperfect actions have caused many to look upon Christianity with contempt. But few people take issue with Jesus. While Christians are imperfect people, they follow a perfect Jesus. So what does it really mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to be a Christian? Join Vintage Church as we learn from the brother of Jesus, James, and discover what it means to live Christianly. today's text. We're wrapping up the book of James this morning. And so if you have your Bible, open it up to James chapter five. If you don't, the words are there on the screen, but we are going to say these scriptures together, starting in verse 12. Here we go. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. And is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wonders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wondering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. If I've never met you before, my name is Dustin Turner. I serve as the lead pastor of Vintage Church. We want to welcome you again. For the last eight weeks, we've been in a series called Christianly, looking at the book of James. James was the brother of Jesus. He was not a follower of Jesus up until the point that Jesus was resurrected from the grave. And then all of a sudden, James realized, oh, wait, everything that he said was true. And so then James went on to be the pastor at the church in Jerusalem, and then he wrote letters to churches, one of them being this letter. And what we've been looking at in the book of James is how James is teaching us what it looks like to follow Jesus, what it looks like to be a Christian, what it looks like how to live how? Christianly. To be a Christian and to live as a Christian. And we come to the very end of this book. And in the very end, in James chapter 5, it might seem maybe a little bit kind of scattered. Like he's kind of closing up some things, wrapping up some stuff. And I don't know if you've ever shared something with someone before, whether it's in person or on a video or in a letter or an email, you're kind of thinking to yourself, okay, what's the stuff 
that I need to make sure I tell this person before I wrap this up. Anybody ever been there before? That's what James is doing. James has kind of shared all of this stuff about how we're called to live, and he's got a few more important key details that he wants to tell everybody, to say, these things are important. Don't forget about these things. Now, here's what I want you to get today. Here's the big idea. If we were to try to summarize everything that James says in these few verses, it's this, speak for the good of the church and for the glory of God. Speak for the good of the church and for the glory of God. You're going to notice something in these verses. Number one, and throughout the book of James, James is concerned about how we live our lives because of who our God is. He wants our lives to match up with who God is, the character of God. And the second piece to this is this letter is about the church. The church is not this building. The church is not those buildings that you pass as you are driving through a city or through a town or through a country. The church is what? The people of God. And that's why James is so concerned with what we say, how we use our words, because how we use our words, what we say, especially to one another, has implications for the church. So he begins in verse 12, and he simply says this, speak the truth. Verse 12, he says, but above all my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. I think a simple way to understand this is James is saying we should speak with simple honesty. Now, if what James says in verse 12 sounds familiar, it's because somebody else said something very similar. Any guesses who said something? Jesus. Matthew chapter 5, in his Sermon on the Mount, he says, again, you've heard it that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely or you shall not lie, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one a hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Now, I know you might be reading those verses and be thinking to yourself, are we not just kind of like blowing this out of proportion a little bit, James and Jesus? Like, what's the big deal? And what they're simply getting at is this idea of simple honesty, or another way to put it, truth. Now, why does truth matter? There's something inherent, right, within us as human beings that when we are lied to, it bothers us. Anybody ever been lied to before? Were you bothered by the lie, right? It's something inherent within us that when someone lies to us, we just immediately are upset about being lied to. And the reason is because we were not created for a lie. We were created for truth. 
I mean, even think about if you know just a little bit about the Bible, go back to the very beginning, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. God sets everything up in Genesis 1 and 2, and creation is what? It is very good. And part of the reason that it's very good is because up to this point, God has spoken what? Truth. He's told Adam and Eve everything that they need to know. He has told them, this is the tree that you can eat of. It's the tree of life. It will bring you life. But if you eat of this tree, the, no the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall what? You'll surely die. And he's trying to tell them, listen, I'm telling you the truth. Genesis 3 comes in, and what does the enemy say? Did God really say? A lie. The enemy is the very opposite of God. He's a liar. Scripture calls him a liar. God is truth. The reason that lies offend us and bother us is because we weren't created for lies. We were created for what? Truth. Because God is what? Truth. Just a few weeks ago, when Joseph Duke preached, he talked about the simplicity of God and how God doesn't have parts and how if God is wise, that was the attribute that Joseph was talking about, then there's not like one part of him that's not wise. He is completely wise. And in the same way, we can think about truth in that way in that God is completely truth. There is not a part or piece of him that does not have or exude truthfulness. And again, think back to what we've been talking about in the book of James. What James wants us to get at is he wants us to be like God. He wants us to have the character of God. So if God is characterized by truth, then what should we be characterized by? Truth. Think about it like this. You have a place of employment, right? Unless you're retired. God bless you. My father-in-law is here. He's retired. He's just living his best life, you know? But if you have a job and employment, you work somewhere. And if you don't own that business, every day that you walk into that company, you're not just representing you, are you? You're representing the company that you work for. Maybe it's a, 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 a small business, a family-owned business. Maybe it's a big corporation. Whether it's big or small, you go into that workplace, and if you have customers that you're engaging with, you are engaging those customers on behalf of your company. So when that customer comes into contact with you, they are expecting to be treated by someone from the company. How you treat them is projected back onto that company. In the same way, what you say, your words, whether they are true or false, gets projected back onto who? God. God is truth. We are called to be like him, and therefore we are called to be about and speak truth. The question for you and I that I think James wants us to get at is this. Are you known for truth? When, when someone speaks to you, are they, are they thinking that, hey, there's a chance that I'm going to get one thing, but the other thing is reality? 
Or when they speak to you, do they know that what they're going to get from you, regardless of what's going on or what they think or what you think is the truth? Are you known for truth? James continues and he moves on to prayer. Not only are we to speak the truth, but we're to speak to God. Look at verses 13 through 18. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Elijah, the prophet, was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. What James is getting at is that prayer should be the response to all of life's situations. I don't know if you, you caught kind of that, 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 um, that spectrum that James provides. Is that, are you sick? What should you do? Pray. He's like, are you happy? What should you do? Praise, which is just singing, but it's prayer, right? He's like, is there sin? What should you do? Pray. It doesn't matter what the circumstances is in life. You should pray. Next week, we're going to start a four-week series on the topic of joy. And one of the things that Paul says in the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 4, is he talks about anxiety. He says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, what? Pray. Doesn't matter what goes on in your life, you're called to pray. And he says, especially if there's sickness, he says, call the elders together, get your anointing oil, anoint that person and have the elders or the pastors of the church pray over those people. Just by the way, wasn't expecting that video for all those who participated. Thank you. I do you're welcome. Uh, I, I do want to just take a brief moment, and if you don't know this, remind you of how awesome your pastors and leaders are here at Vintage. I am beyond thankful for people like Pastor Mark, Pastor Weaver, Pastor Brick, Nick, who is potentially soon to be pastor. I don't know. Well, you'll hear more about that. I'm just saying. Uh, just some incredible men of God who love the Lord and who love you. And if you don't believe that, just spend a week here and you're going to see. You'll see a lot of other things, but you're going to see that too, okay? So James says, call the elders. Have them pray over you if you are sick. He also says that this should especially be done with sin. And there's this interesting thing in scripture where sin and sickness are often tied together. And this is, a, this is a complicated thing because there's this reality that sin and sickness are tied together, but sometimes there's an indirect connection there. For instance, in the Gospels, in the Gospel of John, the apostles at that time, they come up against somebody who has an illness and they ask Jesus, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? And do you remember what, do you remember what Jesus said? What does he say? In John chapter 9, he says, It was not, verse 3, that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. 
So there's this reality that, listen, sometimes sickness is just sickness. There's sometimes that we're sick, and the reason that we're sick is because there is sin dwelling in us that we haven't dealt with. But here's what I want you to catch. There's always a connection between sin and sickness. Because the reason that there is sickness in our world is because there's what in our world? Sin. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5 says, Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. See, the reason that you and I have any form of sickness that will ultimately lead to our death is because there is sin in our world. So our sickness is something that we should be praying over. Our sin is something that we should be praying over. And then James explicitly says, with our sin, we should be confessing that sin. Now, this is an interesting part of this passage that I think in many ways all of us are like that sounds fantastic and then when it comes to actually doing it we're like maybe next week (laughs) because no one wants to go before anyone and share the junk that's going on in their life and even more significantly no one wants to go before anyone and share the junk that's going on within their heart But James is getting at something absolutely essential to the life of the Christian. And it's this idea of vulnerability. Because vulnerability does something to us and it does something to our sin. Because there's nothing that God doesn't know, God is all knowing. He knows all things. He knows everything that you're thinking. He knows everything that you've done. He knows everything that you're going to do. So the sin that you've committed, it's not like when you confess that sin, God's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you just did that. He already knows it. So why do we confess it? Because when we confess sin, what happens is that sin in our life loses power. When we confess sin, what we do is we begin to expose it. Because here's here's how sin works. Sin grows in darkness. So when it's hidden and when no one can see it, it's like a mold that just grows and grows and grows. But when you take the lid off of the sin and you expose it to light, all of a sudden that sin can no longer grow. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it like this in his book, Life Together, talking about confessing sin to one another. He says, in confession, the light of the gospel breaks into the darkness and closed isolation of the heart. Sin must be brought into the light. What is unspoken is said openly and confessed. All that is secret and hidden comes to light. Sin that has been spoken and confessed has lost all of its power. It has been revealed and judged as sin. And listen to this part, because 
Typically, when we think about sin, we're thinking about what's it going to do to us. But listen to what Bonhoeffer says that I think James is getting at. It can no longer tear apart the community. Because sin is not just this thing that can grow in the dark, but it's also like cancer. As it cancer untreated is going to do what? It's going to spread everywhere. And so sin, unchecked and unconfessed, here's what it does. It begins to spread in you, and then it begins to spread to everyone that's around you. Even if you're not trying to make it spread, that's what happens. And so what James is getting at when he's talking about confession is he's getting at about this reality of, of confessing our sin and becoming vulnerable with those that are closest. Look, I'm not telling you to go find a stranger here today and say, can I tell you what happened last night? <laughs> number one, I think both of you are probably going to leave and you're not going to come back next week, right? But I do think what James is getting at is that in the church, in this community, there should be people that we trust. Doesn't have to be everybody. Doesn't have to be a lot. But there should be a handful of people that we trust that when something's going on in our lives or we've committed a sin, we should be able to come to them and say, I have done this. And you know what? Here's the incredible thing and the beauty about the church and about the gospel. My prayer is what that person will do, the one you've confessed to, is that they will say, God has already forgiven you. And there's something that happens there where then the grace of God that many of us already know here, it becomes felt here. Because Chances are the sin that you've committed, you know you're not supposed to do that. And you're assuming, and the reason you don't want to tell anyone is because you think and believe that they're going to judge you and they're going to condemn you for that sin. And when that person in your life instead extends grace, they're extending that grace on behalf of God. And they're saying, God's forgiven you. And now you have the opportunity through confession to live in that grace. All because you've been vulnerable. You've allowed the Holy Spirit to do something in you and to speak into you. James says that when there's sin, we should pray. And one of the ways that we pray is through confession. My prayer is that Vintage Church would be a place where that kind of vulnerability, that kind of forgiveness is accepted and practiced. And James says all of this, why do we pray? Why do we speak to God? He says, because prayer is powerful. It's powerful in faith, but it's not our faith that makes it powerful. Tim Keller says it like this, it's not the amount of our faith, but the object of our faith that saves us. The reason that prayer is powerful is because God is powerful. The reason that prayer is powerful is because Jesus is powerful. The reason that prayer is powerful is because the Spirit of God is powerful. 
It's the power of God to save us, to renew us, to change us. It's the power of the gospel. Jesus coming to earth, living a perfect life, dying on the cross for our sins, resurrecting from the grave, defeating sin, death, and hell. That's the power in prayer. So James says we should pray because there's power in prayer. And there's power in that prayer because of faith, faith in God. The prayer of faith saves because God saves. And there's power in prayer because of righteousness. Did you catch the example that he gives? He talks about Elijah. And he's careful to make this distinction where he says in verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Saying, hey, look, Elijah's just like you. Nothing special about Elijah. Do you know what made Elijah special? God. God was doing something in Elijah's life, and what Elijah simply did is acknowledge that God is in me and working through me, and so then he chose to live a life of righteousness. And so Elijah was simply a vessel. Richard Foster says this about prayer that I think is so important for us. He says, I cannot make the flow of heavenly life happen, but I can stop it. We should all take that so seriously. There's a reality that God is going to do what God wants to do. He is sovereign. We're not. But there's this, also this reality that God wants to work in you and through you. He wants you to pray. He wants to hear your prayer. He wants to answer your prayers. But if you're not careful, your sin will cause your prayers to become ineffective. So guard your heart and guard your life and seek the Lord. Are you known for prayer? There's a handful of people in this church and in this room that I know are praying for me on a regular basis. You know how I know? Because they're people of prayer. Because they're constantly telling me they're praying for me. I pray that each one of us As we get to know each other more and closer, we know that we are people of prayer. Prayer is where the power is. James understood that. We're supposed to speak truth, speak to God. Lastly, we're called to speak to restore. Verses 19 through 20, James says, My brothers, if anyone among you wonders from the truth and someone brings him back... Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. We are responsible for each other. We are responsible for each other. One of the things that James says, the phrase that he says is so important. He says, anyone among you. Do you know what that phrase means? What that phrase means is that these churches knew who was among them. This is church membership before people were talking about church membership. When we talk about church membership at Vintage, we call our members partners, Vintage partners. 
And sometimes I know when you're thinking about church membership, you're kind of like, what's the big deal? Like I come on Sunday, I participate in a few things. Why does this matter? And the reason that church membership matters is because we need to know who's among us. Because we need to know who we're called to care for. Who's in the family, right? One of the things that I think I'm best known for is this concept called co-parenting. Anybody familiar with this? You're probably not because I've not talked to you about it before. There's one of these things that I like to do. When I go to the beach, I like to relax. And often when I go to the beach, I don't go alone. I bring my family and other families come along with me. You know what that means? There's many children. Many children. But amongst the many children, guess what? There's also a lot of. Many parents, right? And I like to think of parenting in those contexts as kind of a community event. Where I'm no longer responsible for my children... But others are responsible for their children and my children alike. But here's the beautiful thing. Not only are they responsible for my children, I am now responsible for what? Their children. I know the children around me and who I'm responsible for. That's co-parenting. James says that the church is a lot like co-parenting. We got to know who's in the fold and who's in the family and who's in the circle so we know who to care for. That's the power and the importance of of church membership. It's it's why we don't just kind of like, well, I just attend or I just come here and there. Like the church is ultimately family. There's a reason Paul talks about the church and he calls it the household of God. That calls it the family of God. So we're responsible for each other. And when we see somebody wander, what James says, wander from the truth, we know that we're called to go get them. Whether they're wandering because of something that they believe that's wrong or something that they're doing that's wrong. And look, the point of all of that is not judgment and condemnation. You're driving in a car. And all of a sudden, the person driving is starting to veer off into, the, into like the ditch. What are you going to do? Well, I guess, you know, they're driving. They have a driver's license. They, they know what they're doing. Like, surely they're going to move the wheel and we're not going to all die. No, I mean, you're going to be like, what are you doing? And you're grabbing the wheel and adjusting the car. Now, look, don't overcorrect, right? That's also the other danger in this. The church should be the same way. That's the power of restoration. The the point of restoration is not shame, 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 shame. The point of restoration is, look, I love you. You are headed down a path that does not lead to life. Do not do this. That's the point of restoration. And James says that's what we're called to do. We're called to to help people and course correct, to bring them back, he says. Bringing back requires a lot. It requires wisdom. There's a lot of wisdom needed when you see somebody beginning to veer off the path. Because you can come at them hard and they're like, I'm out of here. Or you can come at them gently 
What they're dealing with might require wisdom. Like, well, how do I talk to them about this? Or how do I talk to them about that? But at the same time, to bring them back, you have to recognize the sin. You have to recognize, you have to say, look, this is not okay. And, and by the way, this is, the, this is also the power of church membership. Because when you become a church member or a vintage partner here, there are things that we agree on. Where it's like, look, I'm going to hold you accountable to this, and you're going to hold me accountable to that. When Rachel and I got married and we stood before the congregation and before God, we exchanged what? Vows. And those vows are like what Rachel and I hold one another accountable in. And if we begin to break one of those vows, then we need to call one another out on that. Not because we're judging one another or condemning one another, but because we're married and we love one another and we're committed to one another. The church works the same way. That's what we're called to do. We recognize the sin in the compassion of Jesus. I love when the, the stories of Jesus when he confronts people who are sinful. The, the, the issue that Jesus had with people were not the sinners, it was the what? The religious. Because they were self-righteous. And Jesus always had this way with sinners to basically call out the sin in the most loving, compassionate way possible. The woman caught in adultery. By law, he should have stoned her. Jesus says, go and sin no more. He's telling her, like, what you're doing is not okay. But I have compassion. Go and sin no more. And I think part of bringing people back is it requires patient care. People are hard. Like, really hard. Especially adults. Can we just stop and say, kids are so easy. They're so moldable and shapeable and bendable. But all of you are really difficult. And very challenging. And none of you really want to change. And that's just the reality of life. And so when we're helping somebody and restoring somebody, then what it requires is that we're patient. And that we do our best in that patience to care for one another. To recognize that people take time. James says we bring them back. All of this does what? It saves a soul from death and covers a multitude of sin. This is serious stuff. What James is getting at, this isn't a matter of like just changing opinion or changing a view or like, well, I'm choosing to live a different life now. No, no, no. James is saying all of this is wrapped up in life and death because this is what the gospel is about. Jesus came to give us life. His death on the cross forgave us of sin. His resurrection from the grave instills in us Holy Spirit-empowered life. And so the gospel is about life. When you and I, when we walk away from the gospel, we are walking away from what? Life. And to walk away from life leads to what? Death. James says that's how significant it is for us to restore people. So here's my question for you. Are you known to restore? Maybe a follow-up question that I just thought about is, are you willing to be restored? 
Because some of you are like, yeah, look, sign me up. Anybody needs to be called out, I'm ready. Like, I am game for that. (laughs) But the harder question for us is like, when you walk off the path, are you ready for someone to come to you and say, you're wrong right now. And I love you. And I'm trying to tell you, this is not the path to life. You're on the path to death. Get back on the path to life. I think it's interesting that James ends this way. In some ways, he's just summarizing everything that he said up to this point. And in many ways, I think he's saying, look, if you are going to survive as a people, as the church of God, then you have to speak truth. The truth must always prevail. Always. And in a culture like ours, in a day like ours, truth becomes something that's relevant. And so the word for James for us is like, no, 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 truth is always truth. We always stand on truth. We stand on truth no matter what because God is what? Truth. But if you want to last and you want to survive and you want to be a church that has power, you have to do what? Pray. Because God hears our prayers and he answers our prayers and he wants us to be a people who call on him rather than be a people who say, you know what, I can figure this out. I've got it. I'm strong enough. I'm wise enough. No, you're not. No, we're not. We need God. So we pray. And somewhere along the way, probably every single one of us in this room is going to start to take a step off the path. And the only way to keep a group like this together, headed towards the path of life, is to say, you know what? You might want to take a step in the other direction. I think James is very intentional to finish by just saying those three things. Speak truth. Speak to God. Speak to restore. As we wrap up the book of James, may those words be the words that stick with us. They're simple. Yet when lived out, they are profound. Be a people known by truth people known for prayer and a people known to restore, to love, and to extend grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for truth. Because left to our own devices, God, we wouldn't understand and we wouldn't be able to find truth on our own. But you are truth and you show us what is truth and you call us to live as people of truth. God, there are probably people in this room right now that are hurting. There are people that are joyful. There are people that are in sin. We bring all of them to you in prayer for you to heal bodies and heal minds, for you to heal hearts and change actions. 
And God, for you to continue to extend the joy and the hope that we've called, been called to live in. God, may we be people of prayer. When something's going on in our life or in our world or in the life of our church, may the first thing we do is turn to you in prayer. And lastly, Father, may we be people who restore. May we be people, God, who are about grace, extending grace and, and about life, God, that when we see people coming off of the path that will lead to death, that we could lead them back to life, to know that your gospel, Jesus, your life, your death, your resurrection is what brings life. God, real family is real hard. It's messy, but it's good. May that be the kind of church that Vintage Church is. We love you. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining the Vintage Church NOLA podcast. If you're enjoying this content, please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you next week.